0: The reading is Genesis chapter three, verses one to eight. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Morning,
1: good to be with you to look at Genesis 3 together, and we've been in this series in the book of Genesis, and I wonder if you've been picking up what a work of genius the book of Genesis is. It's so clever, so intricate, uh, and uh, yeah, there's loads in it. We can't cover it all uh, in, a, in a short sermon. But, um, uh, and Genesis 3 is no exception. It is full of subtlety and creativity and clever uh, use of uh, story and language. And that's why Genesis has been read for thousands of years and has inspired many works of art and poetry and, and all sorts of other things because it is such a work of of genius. And one poem that Genesis 3 in particular has inspired uh, was written in about the year 1400 in Middle English, uh, and you might have heard of it. It was written by an anonymous author, but you might still ha- have heard of it. It's quite famous. You might not. I'm going to do the first couple of verses now. Uh, it goes like this. Adam lay abounden, abounden in a bond. Four thousand winters, thought he not too long. And all was for an apple, an apple that he took as the clerks find it, written in their book. The clerks are the clergy, people like me, and their book is is the Bible. Uh, And in there, it says they find this story of Adam taking it was a piece of fruit. We don't know that it was an apple, but taking this piece of fruit. And they connect that to the idea that human beings and the world in general are bound bound in a bond, as the poem says. They are trapped, they are imprisoned. This whole world feels like it has been fractured, stained, broken by evil. And I guess we don't need much convincing of that, certainly not this week, as the news reports have come in and we have seen conflict and violence and war and death and fear Yeah, we know the world is bound. We know it is broken. It is trapped in this sort of evil, fractured state where wicked things do happen. That would be true any week. Maybe it feels particularly strong this week, but any week you can look through the news and see evidence of that. And we think, how did we get here? Because if you've been tracking our series for the last few weeks, we we see a God who is good and generous and makes a good world in his generosity. And it is ordered and it is beautiful and again and again he says it's good. And how do we get from there to here? And the answer is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells the story of the first entry into the world of what the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says that's the answer. That is what has broken the world, has bound the world. It's what put Adam bound in a bond, as the poem says. It's, it's that good and ordered world that God made. That's why it's been fractured, because of sin. And Genesis 3 tells the story of the entry of sin into the world and what it does when it gets here and its consequences. And we're going to look at that together. Our first point, then, is the entry of sin. And I've called it an intruder from outside. Um, And chapter 3, verse 1, just starts off by saying, Now the snake. Now, we've not heard about the snake up till this point. He's a brand-new character, and he just pops up virtually out of nowhere. And that's a bit like evil and sin. It's not part of the... Evil and sin weren't part of the first two chapters. The world God made was good. And evil and sin, like the snake, just seem to pop up. We don't get an ultimate explanation in this chapter of where they arose from. We get some clues, some hints, perhaps. But here's this snake. And we're told the snake is crafty. And that word crafty could be translated shrewd or prudent. It doesn't need to be a bad word. It means clever, something like that. And the snake is clever. But it's also a little joke. It's a, it's a word play. You see, because the word for crafty is arame, And the word for naked in chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve are naked, is arum. room and rain. So they sound like each other. So we could say, Adam and Eve were nude, the serpent was shrewd. That, that kind of thing, you see. And it's, it's drawing our attention to the fact that this serpent is somebody we need to watch out for. We need to listen pretty carefully uh, to what... He says, We're also told that the snake is a creature. He's one of the animals the Lord God had made. And it's this snake that's going to bring this poison, this sin, this evil into the world that's going to wreck and fracture the good world that God has made. Genesis doesn't tell us too much more about him, but the rest of the Bible connects this snake to a spiritual being, a, a sort of an angel uh, that has come to be known as Satan or the devil. Uh, those words just mean adversary or enemy, a spiritual being who is an enemy of God and hates people. Uh, and the rest of the Bible, Revelation in particular, connects this snake to that spiritual being, that he is somehow standing behind the snake, as things uh, unfold. Now, whether that means that actually what you've got is some sort of spiritual being who takes on the form of a snake here, or whether it's a spiritual being who possesses a snake, or, or whatever's going on, in some way there is a spiritual force at work that makes this snake do what it does. Ancient people weren't stupid. The writer of Genesis wasn't stupid. They know snakes can't normally talk. Yeah? Uh, there is a sense that there is a powerful force at work behind this snake. And, and we, get, we don't get much of the devil's story in the Bible. We just get a few clues and hints in places like Isaiah that, that says that the, the devil is basically this being who was created good, a creature, like, like everything else that God made, was created good, and yet the devil decided he didn't want to keep his place as just one of the angels. He wanted to take God's place. And by taking himself out of place... He twisted and broke the beautiful ordered world that God had made, started to unravel the order. And that's just what the snake does as well. So that's, that's the entry of sin, comes through this snake, this new character. But what about the dynamics of sin, the dynamics of sin? Well, it works like this. How sin gets to work is it takes something good and twists it into something evil. It twists it out of Shape, And that's how the snake works. And that's always been the, Christian, the major Christian understanding of evil for, for thousands of years, that, that evil is what's been known as the, the privatio boni, the, the absence of the good. Evil is what happens when a good thing turns away from God's good design for it, and by turning away it twists itself out of shape and becomes Evil. So evil, if you like, is like a parasite. It infects something good and twists it into something evil. Which means good and evil aren't exactly opposites. They're not two different forces that exist out there in the world. No, no, no. God only created good things. Uh, good can exist on its own without evil. Evil cannot exist without something good to corrupt. Because its very nature is to corrupt. Prey on, be a parasite on something good, and to twist it out of shape. And that's exactly how the snake works. He gets to work taking one of the best things we've seen so far, God's good word that made everything good, and twists it. He twists it with subtle half-truths and innuendos. And he's very crafty. He's very clever, because I wonder if you noticed as the, the passage was read. At a superficial level, everything the snake says is true. At a superficial level, he tells the truth. He says, if you eat the fruit, you won't die. It's not poisonous. And they eat the fruit, and it it isn't poisonous. They don't drop dead immediately. And he says, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened. And and verse 7 says, their eyes are opened. At a superficial level, the snake tells the truth, but it's only really a half-truth, which turns out to be a complete lie. And the snake gets to work twisting the truth, twisting the truth of God's word. Verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just starts to ask a question. And it's almost in disbelief. I can't believe that God would say something like that. And the snake at this point is just looking for the man or the woman to bite, engage them in conversation and he gets what he wants. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And at this point, the snake must be thrilled because his work of twisting God's word just subtly has started to take effect. See, it looks, at, at first, it looks like the woman's put the snake right. You know, oh, no, no, you've got it wrong, Snaky, my friend. Uh, actually, we can eat from the... But just subtly, she's added something and taken something away. She's added this command about touching, which God never said. You can read it in chapter 2. God never said anything about touching the tree. It might have been wise not to touch the tree, but it wasn't what God said. And she's added something to what God said. And she's also taken something away because when God said uh, what they could eat, he said you can eat from every tree. He was generous. But do you notice, she just says, we may eat from the trees. She, she leaves out the bit about God's overwhelming generosity. And, and so just subtly, the snake has started to twist the truth, started to plant a few seeds in her mind that maybe not, God's not that good. Maybe he's, he's not that generous. And with those doubts in place, if God's maybe not all he's cracked up to be, Eve, he goes a little further, twists a little more. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. No consequences here. Don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. I said at a superficial level the snake tells the truth because they eat from the fruit and they don't drop dead immediately. But at a much deeper level, it is a horrible lie. And we see that lie played out in history because so far the snake's been wrong 109 billion times and counting. It's roughly the number of people who've ever lived. They've all died as a result of this. Well, his subtle twisting of the truth uh, has been sort of started to take its effect, and now he does something different. In verse 5, he he doesn't just give them a a different command. He says, eat it, Eve, eat it. No, 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 he's clever. Instead of giving a command, he now casts a vision. He's twisted the truth out of shape, and now he spins his own vision of the future. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first, part of false, first piece of false advertising the world has ever seen. It is sort of how advertising works, right? It casts a vision. It doesn't just say buy our product. It gives you a picture of what your life will be like if you have this product. Your your life will be plain sailing. It'll be wonderful. You'll be drinking cocktails on the beach, and you you know, just your life will be so glorious if you buy this aftershave or whatever it is. You know that that is the way advertising works. Casts a vision. That's what the snake's doing here. You eat this fruit. It's one little fruit. Think about what your life will be. You'll be like. You'll be able to decide what's right and what's wrong. And he plays on her senses. He says, take a look. She hears the the lure of the snake and her her focus and her eyes are taken away. I think we've got a picture here of a a woodcut uh, from um, uh, the early modern period uh, from Albrecht Dürer. I think it's going to come on the screen in a moment. It's called The Night, Death, and the Devil. One moment. Well, it, it might come up in just a moment, but if not, it, it's a picture of a, a knight who is looking into the distance, and, and behind him there are all these sorts of uh, monsters and imps and, and the devil trying to sort of snare him away from the path that he is on. And his eyes are fixed on his destination at at home. And and the the point of the woodcut is saying, you know, where your focus is really matters. If you're not focusing in the right uh, direction, uh, then you can be drawn off the path. Now, the snake here is working in Eve's mind, luring her in and trying to get her focus off God's off his words, and putting it in another direction, giving her a vision of uh, the future. And as he's twisted the truth and now cast a false vision of the future, the woman acts. And that is the dynamic of sin. It, It takes something good, God's word, and human senses and the good things God's made, and just twists them to a different agenda. The snake just wants them to follow his word, not God's. And in all this, he's, he's twisting the order of the world that God has made. You see, he's a beast of the field, which human beings were supposed to rule over, if you remember. And now he's calling the shots and ruling over them. And then the woman acts, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it adam's been there all along listening in he's just as culpable but i wonder if you noticed the language there she's believed the false reality the serpent has twisted in front of her eyes cuz she starts acting like god did you notice she saw that it was good Well, that's what God does in chapter 1. And she takes, well, well, God takes things and puts them in their right place. She now takes something out of its right place. And she gives, well, God's been the one so far who's been given. All those words have been used of God in chapter 1 and 2, but now you have Eve deciding that she's going to play that role. This is an outrageous act of rebellion. They were only given one rule, and they broke it. But it is also an act of idolatry, an act of trying to replace gods. And it is outrageous when you consider all that God had done for them. Well, this is how evil works it starts spinning a false reality, starts twisting the true reality, takes good things, twists them out of shape. It's a parasite. That's the dynamic of sin. And it gets to work in our hearts too. Mm, haven't you felt that? And it also means we should be suspicious sometimes of our own hearts. And even suspicious of saying, but, but this is a good thing. Well, yeah, it might be a good thing, but where are you taking it? Uh, is all over the place when people say, be true to yourself. You know, how can you argue against something like, be true to yourself? Truth's good, we believe in truth. But it, is that where truth is supposed to be? Is truth supposed to be found only in myself? Or am I supposed to look to God for it? Just something for us to ponder, I guess, about how sin works. If it's taking good things and twisting them into bad things, we need to be suspicious even of some of the things in our lives that are good because they could be taken and twisted to a bad use. Well, that's the dynamics of sin. Uh, And then there are consequences, because the snake lied. He he pretended there were no uh, consequences, but there are consequences for sin. There's a a huge, tragic irony in verses 6 and 7. As you read verse 6, "'The tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, "'desirable for gaining wisdom.'" It's ramping up how good this is going to be. It's raising the expectations. What a piece of fruit. And isn't that how sin works? It's going to be really good if I do this. Oh, yeah. It's gonna, when sin tempts you, you think, oh, it'll be great. It'll be great. It'll be great. And then the reality comes crashing down. The expectations raise so high, the reality comes crashing down. And that's the, mechan- the, the dynamic in verses 6 and 7, isn't it? They eat thinking this is going to be great, it's good fruit. Verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized they were naked. They said fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The instant it happens, there is a new recognition of, not godhood, but shame and fear and vulnerability. And the minute their eyes are open, they want to hide. Why? Well, I think that's because when the world was in a good order and God said, this is how it is, and you live in my world under my rules, everyone knows where they stand. But as soon as the man and the woman take the fruit, and now you've got two people who think they can decide what's good and bad for themselves, they get to make the rules. Well, hang on, what if you're not playing by my rules? I'm not sure I can trust you anymore. Have you, you never had a colleague or a friend or someone you know and, and you say, I'm just never sure where I am with them. And, and if you have that experience in a, in a relationship of some kind, you're probably not going to be that open. You're not going to reveal your whole heart to somebody because what are they going to do with that? And you're seeing that here. The, the man and the woman, they don't trust each other anymore. They need to hide. I'm not sure I can trust you with this. I, I don't know. They don't die immediately, but the guilt, the fear, the shame, this is not life as God created it to be. In the words of Macbeth, they are now life as a walking shadow. It's not the glorious life they were made for. This now feels weak and fragile and broken and scary, and I want to run. I want to hide. Yeah, they know good and bad. They know good and evil in a new way, a different way. But it's not good not helpful to them it's fractured and and broken their relationships with one another and when you think about it if this is where fear and shame and and wanting to hide and and that sense of distrust and uneasiness come from well when you look at the world and see the brokenness that we all acknowledge is there how much of it is driven by fear or shame or distrust here is where we see the seeds of sin And in the newspapers, week by week is where we see it's outworking. All was for an apple, an apple that he took, as the poem said. And so what we have here is a three-dimensional picture of sin in this passage, sin in 3D, because we see sin as rebellion. They had one command and they broke it, one command from a God who had the right to give that command, the rightful king of the universe, and they said, no, we're not going to accept your authority. Sin is rebellion. Sin is idolatry, wanting to replace God with themselves in this case. But you could replace God with lots of other things that you value more highly than him. And sin as brokenness. And that's really the consequence of sin. As all of a sudden their relationships with one another fracture. And not just their relationships with one another. Verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, that's a, bit of a loose, that's a bit of a weak translation because the word for cool of the day is the wind of the day. And the word for walk is really the word for stamp or march. And so, actually, the, the Lord God is stamping in the garden in the wind of the day. What's happening in verse 8 is all of a sudden, man and woman experience God not as this loving, generous father that we've seen in verse, chapters 1 and 2. All of a sudden, they experience God as a whirlwind. A terrifying storm. And that explains why they hid from him. He's a threat now. These are the consequences of sin. We're, we're not living under God's blessing and pleasure as we were before. We don't trust one another. The barrier, the, there are now new barriers between us, new brokenness in the world. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? It's not a massively hopeful picture. In fact, to find much hope, you have to come out of this short passage, verses 1 to 8, really. Although there is just a note in verse 8 because they were told they would be like God. But verse 8 is pretty clear, isn't it? They're they're not really like God. God is on a different level. They're not really in competition with him. He is more majestic and mighty uh, than them. And here's the good news of this passage. This passage tells us that the problem with the world, the reason it's broken, the reason it's messed up, is sin. And you know what? That's brilliant news. Because sin has a cure. If the problem isn't sin, then we've got to find out what the problem is, and who knows if we can fix that problem. But if the problem is sin, if the problem with the world is sin, then the rest of the Bible tells us sin has a cure. And the one who knows how to cure it is the good, wise, powerful God that we've already met in Genesis. A God of infinite goodness. And that's really important that he's infinitely good because sin takes good things and twists them to evil. But it it can't twist God to evil because his goodness is infinite. There's no place for sin to get started. The reason creatures can be twisted from good to evil is is because we're not complete in ourselves. We need to look to God and depend on Him. And God gave us the space and the freedom to to turn to Him and live out the good life that He'd given for us. But He also gave us the freedom to choose otherwise. Remember back in chapter 1 how He gives creation space? And if we chose to turn in a different direction from the one He'd given us, told us, That's how evil gets a foothold, but there's no chance for evil to get a foothold with God. And and so it's God, this God, in whom we can have hope. This God can cure sin because he is infinitely good and not able to be corrupted or infected by it. At the end of the book of Genesis, there's a moment where Joseph's brothers come before him, having betrayed him. And they say, we're so sorry. And Joseph says, don't worry. I'm not in God's place. You intended evil, but God has turned it to good. God's goodness is so infinite that he can take something evil and turn it back into good. He can undo the work of evil. We see that in the gospel as as evil is done by human beings to the Lord Jesus. And God turns it to our salvation. Uh, we see it all the way through the Bible. You know, uh, that poem I began with actually ends uh, like this. It says, blessed be the time that apple taken was. Therefore we may sing in Deo gratias. There's a stream of theology that talks about the Felix Culpa, the, the happy fall, the happy fault. That ultimately God turns even this tragic scene to good. And the way he does that is by sending Jesus. And in sending Jesus, what, what we get is the opportunity to be united with Christ by faith. And if we're united by Christ, uh, to Christ by faith, we, the Holy Spirit lives within us. We are now connected in a much more intimate and deep and personal way to God than Adam ever was. The New Testament calls us sharers in the divine nature at one point because of our union with Christ. And that is what means the new creation that Sarah and Paul talked about last week, uh, where everything's restored and even better. One of the things that makes it even better is there will be no space in the new creation for evil to get a foothold in our hearts. Because of our salvation through Jesus, because of our deep connection to the divine nature through what he's done for us, The chance of falling again will be no more. And that's why they called it the happy fault. The blessed fault. And that's where our hope rests. Yes, evil is real and serious. It twists good things out of shape. But praise God, he is a God who can twist evil back into good.